We are going to start off really in three different portions of Scripture, but two of them I will read out loud to you, and then we're going to land in Mark chapter 3. And if you want to be able to follow along with me, and I would encourage you to, and you can flip quickly through them, uh, we're going to be in Jonah first, then we're going to be in the... Um, the book of Hebrews, and then we're going to be in Mark. Now, I will read a couple of verses out of each, but you don't have to be there. Now, um, every one of us, would you, would you agree with this statement that every single one of us has experienced anger in some way? Would you guys agree with that statement? I know some of you are like, what? Right? One of the surest ways to get someone angry is to ask them this question, why are you angry? right? It makes you even more angry when the question is asked. Now, there are people that would protest, like, I'm not angry. I'm just irritated, or I'm just frustrated, or I'm just upset. You know, there are over 70 words, unique individual words in the English language that we use to re-describe the word anger. And time will not permit me to give you all 70 of those words this morning. But you see, in the end, most of us are angry to some degree, and yet most of us will absolutely not admit that we're angry. Coming to the screen here in just a moment, in his book, Uprooting Anger, by an author named Robert Jones, this is what he says, anger is a universal problem prevalent in every culture, experienced by every generation. No one is isolated from its presence, nor are they immune from its poison. It permeates each person and spoils our most intimate relationships. Now, if you would, just hang tight on that for a moment. Robert Jones is attempting to explain to us in just this small portion of his book that anger is a given part of our fallen human fabric. It's a part of every single one of us. And sadly, it is true even in the Christian home and even in churches. Amen? Anger is a problem. Our world is an angry place and it's filled with angry people. We're living in a time where it seems that people cannot be civil towards each other. Would you agree with that? I mean, look at our culture. The violence rate, the murder rate, hatred, and ugliness at times seem to overwhelm and overpower everything else in this culture. And what are we to do? What are we to do? Because after all, the Bible tells us to be angry and sin not. So how do you pull that off? How do you pull it off? I mean, the subject of anger is, is so vast. It's, it's such a complex issue, and all of our questions on anger cannot be unearthed and answered in just this one single sermon, or even in a series of sermons on that one topic. There are, however, some elements of anger that I think that we need to understand today. We need to be well aware of our own sinful anger and the repercussion that really follows as a result of that anger. But we also need to understand and see righteous anger and how the right use of anger can impact our life as a believer, but then learn how that actually changes us when we see anger differently. 
So if you're there with me, um, I'm going to start in Jonah chapter 4. Now, how many of you in here could raise your hand and say, I know, um, I know the account of Jonah in the Bible? Like, I've heard it, whether it's as a kid or sometime. Okay, so a good number of you, right? So Jonah's a prophet called by God to go and preach to the Ninevites, and Jonah doesn't want to, and he actually runs in the opposite direction of God. You ever find yourself there? God wants you to do something, and you run as fast as you can in the opposite direction, right? So he's, he's, he gets on a boat. He's headed for the land of Tarshish. And what happens? This massive storm comes. The sailors on the boat get scared. And Jonah's like, just throw me overboard. Woo, right? And he throws, he's thrown overboard of this boat. And what does the Bible tell us? That he's swallowed by a great fish. Or as we were taught as, as a kid, a whale, right? And he's in the belly of the whale for three days. And this beautiful picture that we see of, of not only prayer from Jonah, but this beautiful picture foreshadowing the work of Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jonah is then vomited out by this whale on the shore. And he finally does what God wants him to. And he goes and he preaches repentance in chapter 3 of Jonah. He preaches repentance. And now look at, at verse number 1 if you're there of chapter 4, and it says this, the, the people start repenting, right? And then it says in verse number 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Man, why on earth is Jonah mad that people are repenting? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Now, if you're there, or you can be, now I want you to turn me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Now I want to look at the life of another person from the Old Testament. Another example of anger, and starting in verse number 14, the writer of Hebrews says this, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And church, this is so important. It says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. It says in verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like who? Like Esau, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Do you guys remember that in the book of Genesis? Esau selling his birthright for a single meal. And it says, for you know that afterwards, when Esau desired um, to inherit the blessing, what happened? He was rejected. He was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And now, if you would, go with me to the book of Mark, where we're going to land. Mark chapter 3. And here it says in verse number 1, 
Again, he, speaking of Jesus, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill it? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. There are three examples of anger that we just looked at in Scripture. In Jonah, we saw God ask the question, do you do well to be angry? And that one specific question gets right to the heart of the issue of anger. Do you do well to be angry? Then we moved on and saw a brief glimpse at Esau The example of what happens to a person who is overcome with anger in this life lives an angry and out-of-control life. You see, Esau's lifestyle was wicked. It was wicked. There was a serious warning in Scripture from from the, the writer, not just of Genesis, but also of Hebrew saying anger gives birth to bitterness, and that bitterness brings the ability to infect other people with your sin. I mean, Solomon, right, the wisest man to walk the planet outside of Jesus Christ, said that man should make no friendship with an angry man. No friendship. And then, of course, we get to Mark chapter 3, and then there's Jesus. The ultimate example of what we would call righteous anger. And how really we should even handle anger in this life. Now, as we kind of pull the curtain back here, we know, right? We know the common thread in these three portions of scripture is what? What are we talking about today, church? Anger. The common thread in all three portions of Scripture is anger. But with the time we have left, I want us to look a little deeper at these three portions of Scripture, and I want us to think for just a moment. Can you see what's causing anger? Can you see it? Can you see what anger truly is at the very bare bottom? Can you see what it is? If you're a note taker this morning, I want you to write this. Anger is a function that defends what you love. Anger is a function that defends what you love. You know, Jonah loved the idea that the Ninevites would face and feel the wrath of God. It's what they deserved, right? They they were such a wicked people who were nothing but a thorn in the side of Israel the entirety of time up until Jonah's book was written. I mean, now, right, the Ninevites completely repented. They turned to God, and now who looks bad? Now who looks bad? Jonah, the, the man who preached salvation to a pagan nation. It's like, way to go, Jonah, 
We, we were waiting to see God crush the Ninevites, but you had to go and, and preach to them, and then they turned to God, and now you're angry about it. Man, Esau loved himself so much that he lived a wicked and godless life. And once he realized what he had done in dismissing and trading his birthright, he regretted it so deeply, but he wouldn't repent. He continued to live a, a wicked and angry lifestyle. And guess what happened? The Bible tells us that he became the example of bitterness. The one who defiled not only his life, but the lives of every person in his sphere or circle of influence. His life should have been a warning. It is the warning for us. He serves as the example of what happens when people want God's blessing, but they don't want God. When people weep tears of regret and sorrow, but they never truly repent of their sin. They never turn away from self and turn towards God. Instead, they go on sinning, willfully sinning, even after receiving the truth. Esau, Esau loved himself. But then you get to this example of Jesus in Scripture. And you see that he is not only an example, but he's a perfect example of what to do with anger. How to be good and angry at the same time. You're like, Pastor, is that even possible? Well, yes, it is. It is. Because despite the horrible intentions of the people around him, Jesus glorified God and gave hope in the midst of an awful and angry situation here in Mark chapter 3. It was love in each one of those circumstances that defended what they wanted. It just looked different for all three of them. Jonah, Jonah loved the wrath of God. He wanted to see it. Esau loved his own life. Jesus, he said, I love the people. I love the people. I want to see change happen. I want to bring hope to hopeless situations. It was C.S. Lewis who said in his book, The Letters to Malcolm, which was really written, really written to a, a fictional imaginary person. C.S. Lewis said this, that anger is the fluid that love bleeds when it's cut. Anger is the fluid that love bleeds when it's cut. And so the reaction, anger, right? And every single one of us indicates and shows us what we really love. It's the reason that anger is sometimes very hard to diagnose as sinful or righteous. Being angry and getting angry is going to happen. Would you agree with me? It's going to happen in this life. Well, we are going to get angry. And that's what Paul is talking about when he said, be angry and sin not in Ephesians chapter 4. We will be angry, but what is making us angry? What is truly making us angry? And as God asked Jonah, do you do well to do or to be angry? And if your answer is yes, then what do you do with that anger when it comes? I mean, I want to be really clear for us this morning, extremely clear. 
because I've been in Christian circles for such a long time, I've come across this idea and this thought that Christians are never to be angry. Anybody else ever hear that or or see that in Christian circles sometimes? Like we want to hide the fact that we have an anger inside of us, and that is so not accurate at all. Amen? To never be angry means that you love nothing and are totally indifferent. To never be angry. And we should be angered, church, at injustice. Amen? We, We should be angered at oppression. Amen? We should be angered at cruelty. Right? But at the same time, our anger should be free of malice and hatred. Completely free of malice and hatred. Why? Because as image bearers of Christ, humanity is hardwired to value justice and fairness. We're hardwired. And when we are wronged or when we see examples of injustice, we feel strong emotions of anger and frustration and confusion. Would that resonate with you this morning? Right? We, we have a craving to see ourselves and others treated fairly and to see society function to ensure that justice is offered or afforded to all people and that is good. However, however, church, I felt like I needed to address something this morning. Because of our sinful nature, our definition and our conception of justice is skewed. Well, pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to read to you a small snippet out of an article that I just read Monday or Tuesday of this last week. It was written by a man whose name is Vodi Baucom. He's an African-American pastor and author who is currently residing in Africa, Uh, running a college and a biblical leadership school there. But he was raised in California during the riots in the 60s. He was a father, he came from a fatherless home. His father was an alcoholic, he was abusive. And he was the oldest of his siblings and he had to, I believe there were eight of them. And he had to raise them while his mother worked multiple jobs for them to essentially live in, in a state of being poor. A man who knows what it means to get arrested and pulled over and and judged by a cop. He's a black man and I want to hear, I want you to hear what he said. He says that American culture propagates a version of societal fairness that they call social justice. He said adding to the confusion of justice that we experience every single day in this life. On the surface, it appears that the culture social justice movement lines up with biblical justice because the goal of social justice is to ensure that the oppressed groups are freed from oppression and that their needs are met. And while this appears to agree with the biblical meaning of justice, a closer examination of the terms show that culture's justice is completely different than biblical justice. Why? Because the Bible defines justice in two ways. Why did he make the statement? The Bible first defines justice as retribution in which someone who commits a sin or wrongdoing is punished for their deed. That's the first act of biblical justice. The second is a restorative 
justice in which those who are unrightfully hurt or wronged are restored and given back to them what was taken. It focuses on restoring to individuals what has been unfairly taken from them and it helps them rise out of their bondage. I want you to think about it this way, church. If an orphan has no family, biblical justice seeks to give that child a home. If someone was robbed, Biblical justice focuses on restoring the individual's specific need. This justice spoken about in the Bible does not care about what color your skin is. It does not care about your racial background, your ethnicity, or the status that you have in this life. And our ultimate example of justice is found in the life and person of Jesus Christ. He healed the sick. He defended the weak. He ultimately paid the price for our sin. And he freed us from the oppression of our sinfulness and the death that came with it. Social justice in this culture takes a root that directly contrasts the meaning of biblical justice. The core value of social justice is to redistribute resources and advantages to the disadvantaged. But for this to happen, it requires of our culture to identify those who have the resources versus those who do not. And this is the very first problem with culture's version of social justice. It pits people groups against each other. It instills jealousy in those deemed oppressed versus those deemed the oppressor. It creates a victim mentality that we're seeing over and over and over again in the oppressed. And it forces them to look for blame in others, oftentimes unjustly. But you know what I have learned as I've studied scripture? I found that biblical justice unites and uplifts people. It unifies them under the heading and, and lordship of Jesus Christ. Social justice tears down groups and creates division. People who do not have a biblical sense of justice will look for any anti-biblical solution to the problem of injustice, which always leads to more problems. Church, our world is full of injustice. Completely ravaged by injustice, but it always will be until Christ comes back. It will always be until he comes and he restores his kingdom and he justly rules. And so until then, until then, we are commanded by the prophet Micah that we are to seek justice, we are to love mercy, and we are to walk humbly with our God. And as we walk through this life, as we seek to reflect God's justice, we have to do so in accordance with God's will, not our own, not some destructive ideology of social justice, because that ideology in the culture has used our guilt and our shame over America's past, and they've used our good and godly desires for reconciliation and justice as a means of introducing heresy into the church. And so you and I as Christians cannot embrace or modify or even Christian, Christianize the culture's ideologies 
Instead, as the Christian, we are to identify and resist and even repudiate those dangerous concepts that our culture says. Why? Because we cannot be held hostage through emotional blackmail and name-calling as our culture does. Instead, instead, the church is, it really should heed the words of Paul as he wrote this in Colossians chapter 2 when he said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit to human traditions according to the elements of the spirits of this world, but not according to Christ. We, as as churches across America, should embrace the exact words that Paul was already talking to the church about over 2,000 years ago. Don't be led astray by something that is anti-biblical. Pastor, why are you so worked up about social justice? Why? Because more and more am I seeing Christians follow so fast into the slippery slope of whatever the culture is saying and we embrace it and our churches are now taking it and filling their services with those ideologies but church righteous anger always reacts to actual sin it doesn't create something in the mind of me and then spread it to everybody else guess what That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews said would happen. When we become angry over something, if it's not dealt with what happens, bitterness. And your bitterness not only defiles you, it defiles everybody in your circle of influence. And so today, we have to know that righteous anger focuses on God and God's kingdom alone. Not my kingdom, not my rights, not my... No, God's. God's kingdom Righteous anger is always accompanied by other godly qualities. And it's always expressed in godly ways. And we saw that perfectly in Mark chapter 3. We saw it perfectly when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath I mean, compare what we saw in Mark 3 to what we read in Hebrews and Jonah about Jonah and Esau. I mean, we come away with such clarity in Scripture on how awful and how embarrassing and how deadly anger can be in this life. And so I want you to note, take note this morning that we must be aware of our anger. We must be aware of it. I mean, anger has roots, and there was another author by the name of Terry Bridges, and he wrote a book called Respectable Sins, and I would highly recommend that you read that book. He calls the roots of anger the weeds, the weeds of anger. I mean, much of the anger that we harbor in this life is seen through words like resentment, right? A bitterness, enmity, hostility grudge, strife, words that we use to describe it. Church, do you see the weeds? Do you see the weeds? Are you aware of what's lurking in the garden of your heart? Are you aware of what's growing inside of you because of anger? I mean, if we go back to the Old Testament, and we don't have time to to read this, but I would also encourage you to read the book of Jeremiah chapter 45. 
because God speaks to a man by the name of Baruch, and he's a scribe and a scholar, and he's upset and angry with the prophet Jeremiah. And everyone is so mad at Jeremiah because of what he's preaching. And he's increasingly being hated by the people in the book of Jeremiah. And so Baruch was losing his status and he was becoming angry about it. He was losing his dream, right? His desire to be the top guy, the head priest, the one that everybody looked to. And God comes to Baruch in in Jeremiah chapter 45 and he says, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. In other words, God is like, Barak, make me your success, not yourself. And as I was reading that this week, I couldn't help but hear the overtone of God. Are you seeking great things? It's the same overtone he took with Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Like, why are you angry, Jonah? Uh, Church, are you here this morning and there's something that's been angering you? Is there a grudge that you've been holding in your life? Are you seething today with resentment towards somebody else? Are you boiling over inside with rage? Are you now causing strife because of it? I mean, What do you want that you're not getting? Is it respect? Is it pleasure? Is it recognition? What is it that you're not getting? Is it your opinion or your your voice being heard? Money? A relationship? What is it that you're not getting? What's getting in the way of what you love that's causing you to become angry? And then when you are angry, guess what happens? We, we become cynical in our anger. We become sarcastic in our anger. Listen, I understand those two things. They're, they're a huge part of what God is, is still working to remove in my life. I used to joke around with people that sarcasm was my love language. It was also my spiritual gift, is what I used to tell people. But that sarcasm came from a place of being a cynic. That came from a place of being angry because I was trying to protect something that I loved. And oftentimes it was my own pride. But when you become cynical and sarcastic... You tear people apart with your words. You completely obliterate them by the things that you say. You hold on to hurt when you're cynical. You would be happy to find out that the person that hurt you got what was coming to them. Did you know that the longer you stay angry at a person, the more they have control over you? Who in your life do you refuse to get right with? Who is it? And I'm not talking about getting along with another. I'm not talking about being cordial. But who in your life do you refuse to get right with? I mean, James. James was 
probably one of my favorite New Testament books because it covers so much of how to live the Christian life from day to day. I want you to see what he says as he addresses and exposes this very issue. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions, it says your, your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have and so you want murder. So you murder, you cover it and you cannot obtain. So you what? You fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James is saying that the sinful warring desire of the heart is the cause for every fight that we have. I mean, when we lose our temper, when we speak ill of another person, when we gossip or backbite, when we resent somebody, when we hold on to a grudge, all we're doing is dishonoring God, destroying relationships, and giving the devil an advantage. That's it. We're damaging the very testimony of Jesus Christ in this life. Church, I want you to write this down. The sin of anger is a violation of love. It's a violation of love. And I just want to be really real with you this morning. I want to be really raw. With well over 10 years, close to 15 years in ministry life and pastoring, I have seen firsthand not just in my own life, but in the lives of the people around me, how anger devastates. I've seen it. I've seen how it ruins and wreaks havoc in families and marriages and even in churches. I mean, the, the destruction and the damage that anger causes is so de devastating. And, and dear church, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. A little over two years ago, I took over pastoring here at the church. And a few months into pastoring, a whirlwind of things began to happen. And I'm not going into the details because it's unnecessary for you to know them. But there were a lot of ill that was, there was a lot of ill that was spoken about myself and about my wife and about our family and about this church and I remember we would, we would wade through all the muck and the mud and we'd make it to what we thought was the other side and then something else would hit. And the wound was still so raw and it was still so fresh that when the next thing hit, it ripped everything right back open again and I felt like I was all the way back at the beginning. And then we would have to wade through all the muck and the mud and we're like, yes, we're, we're finally on to solid ground and bam, something else would happen. And I'm like, God, what is even going on here? And in all of this hurt that was transpiring and had transpired, I began to grow to a very place of anger and bitterness towards the people who spoke ill, not just about me, not just about my wife, but about our church. And I told myself and I told my wife, I told some of our church leaders, our, our board, like I, I am well to be angry because I'm trying to defend the people that, that God put me in charge of. He wants me to shepherd. And several months went on and, and just church, I, I'm just trying to give you a, a real example of something that's really fresh. I got to a point in my life 
where I'm like, God, what is even going on? The same year that all of the mess happened, I was diagnosed with cancer. Less than six weeks after I was diagnosed with cancer, my family's best friends walked away and we found out all of this garbage had been going on behind the scenes that was a detriment, not just to our church, but to our family. And I grew more and more angry and more and more bitter as the months went on. And I got to the point where through the process of being unable to sleep because of so much pain that God began to reveal the very nature of my own heart because I started to become angry with God. Like, God, why on earth are you doing this to me? Why on earth are you putting my family through this? Why on earth are you putting our church through this? What is even going on? And God began to reveal the very nature inside of me, the very sinfulness inside of me that was like, Josh, you're angry. You're angry at them. You're not angry at me. Because if you were in the right headspace, if you were really following me and my word, you would know that sometimes I allow things to happen in your life so that I can chisel you away and make you more into my son's image. And I come across this passage and I'm sitting counseling somebody one night downstairs in my office and this person is like, man, I don't know what to do, pastor. My wife and I just keep fighting and 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 it just won't ever stop. And so I was like, well, let's go to Ephesians chapter four. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Do so with brotherly love. Lay aside anger and hate and malice and wrath. Put all of those away. Speak in love. Be angry and sin not. And in that very moment, I felt like the, the Holy Spirit pulled a two-by-four and whacked me right upside the head as I was saying, man, be angry and sin not. In all of my anger and all of my frustration, I began to lash out. I began to hurt the people that were closest to me. Do you guys have a, a situation like that in your own life? Something that you can recall where that happened? Because somebody did something, church, anger destroys you. It destroys you. And we have to be aware of the anger that we have in this life, but not only do we have to be aware of the anger, we also have to address it. And so you're like, Pastor, what did you do? How did you address the anger in your life? How did you let it go? It took time. That's what I want you to know first, is it took time. Because when we find ourselves getting angry, and you will, you're going to, don't lie to yourself, you're going to get angry sometime. It might even happen today. When you walk, you're maybe angry right now, I don't know. But you have to ask yourself a very simple question. What am I defending? What am I defending? We have to address the very issue inside of our heart. We have to check for weeds. Any gardeners in here? You have to check for weeds so that your, your plants or, or your flowers or, or, or your, your vegetables, they can grow healthy. You have to be truthful and honest. You have to repent of your anger. And you're like, well, pastor, I know that sounds super simple, 
but it's really hard to do. Anybody else find it difficult to do what I just said? I know it sounds simple, but it's the first step. It truly is. And most of us know, I mean, we're we're told in in the book of James, right, to, to be slow to anger. Do you know that God is slow to anger? I love what the psalmist said in Psalm 103 when he said, the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. But what else does it say? He's rich in what? Mercy. And that's a reoccurring theme all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, in fact, in Jonah chapter 4, do you guys remember? Jonah himself said, God, you are slow to anger. You are merciful. You are gracious. And at some point, uh, something that we have to understand is that the world saw God's most angry, wrathful moment in Jesus on the cross. And on that cross, Jesus took God's righteous indignation for sin. And in love, he offered all who receive it a free gift of salvation and grace. In other words, God's greatest act of love to every one of us was his own son taking the punishment and the payment for the penalty of sin. And if you go back to the Gospels, the Gospel writers Record for us a few things that Jesus utters from the cross. And there are two of them that I want to address. Two that are most familiar. How many of you remember when Jesus said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they are doing. But what else did he say? What was so significant? He said, It is finished. It is finished. And so the next time that you and I are angry, we have to stop and think about the fact that Christ paid for that sinful anger and for every offense that would happen in this life. And when he said on the cross, it is finished, he was saying the transaction is complete. It's done. The payment has been made for you and I. Our debt to God has been paid. And that right there is the perfect picture, though, church, of how awful hell is. You're like, what? The people who reject and refuse God's free gift, they damn themselves to eternity separated from God. I mean, sin is so awful inside of us. That for all of eternity, those who reject God will spend their lives, as one theologian says, getting the sin burned out of them for all of eternity. Years ago, there was an evangelist um, here in the United States by the name of Rolf Bernard. Has anyone ever heard of him? Okay, a few, a few people nodding their heads. He used to end most of his sermons Most of of the times that he had an opportunity to preach, this is how he would end. He would say, ladies and gentlemen, the fires of hell and the blood of Jesus go together. The blood satisfies the justice of God and one drop will do, but the fires of hell do not satisfy the justice of God. And that's why the fires of hell never go out. But at this very moment, church, Our kind and gracious and loving and merciful God is extending grace. The the payment that was made by Jesus was and is still good. 
he still forgives despite our refusal to do so. God canceled the very record of debt that stood in our way. I used to hate, um, please, please don't judge me, I'm just being real this morning. I used to hate a, going to church at times because our church only sang hymns. And it's like, you know, open up your hymnal to page 385. And as a, as a child and as a teenager, I never really fully grasped what the writer of the song was saying. One of my favorite hymns still to this day that I could listen to on repeat over and over, and, and though I have a lot, is the song, It Is Well With My Soul. A song we're all familiar with, I assume. Right? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But my favorite verse really comes in verse number three. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, it was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Do you know this morning how to address your anger and deal with it? You let what Christ paid for you on the cross overshadow what you think someone owes you. That, that's how. You let what Christ paid for you on the cross overshadow what you think people owe you. Yes, the Bible says, repent of our sins. Yes, the Bible commands reconciliation. He commands that we reach out to others in grace. We have to remember the hatred in our heart. We have to know that the ill will and bitterness does far more to us when we hold on to it than it does the object for which it is directed. Because forgiveness in this life, it removes the barrier because without forgiveness, that barrier will always remain. That barrier doesn't go away without forgiveness. And church, you will find it way easier to forgive when you consider how greatly you have been forgiven. You have to ask God for help. I remember this thought came to me that there is a difference in saying a prayer and praying a prayer. There's a complete and utter difference in that because there were countless times where I found myself on my knees begging of God to forgive me of my wronging doing and my sin against him. Well, I forgave so and so for what they did for me. I remember time and time again thinking of the cross and saying, Jesus, you prayed for their forgiveness, not their punishment. Church, when we change our thinking, we begin to cultivate a heart of grace and mercy, of compassion. And in this life, you have to freely and abundantly and uncalculatingly choose to forgive the people around us, and we have to learn to do it often. How many of you are movie buffs in here as we land this plane? You guys like to watch movies? Okay. So how many of you 
um, have ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, or you know what Forrest Gump is, all the unholy people. No, I was just joking. <laughs> so in the movie Forrest Gump, there is a scene in which Forrest and his friend Jenny walk up to the old house where she used to live in while she was growing up. And the house is completely dilapidated. It's, it's run down. And as she walks up to this house and she sees this home, it brings back all of the bad memories of living in that home. The abuse, verbally, physically, the alcoholism in that home. And, and in, a, in a, um, a flurry of emotions, Jenny begins to pick up rocks and starts chucking them at this. You guys remember this scene in the movie? She throws rock after rock after rock at this home until she is completely exhausted and weeping. And Forrest turns over to her and he says, sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. Sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. And we as the movie watcher, right, we're watching it and we're like, I know that she's throwing those rocks because she never healed from the hurt of growing up in that home. She never healed. But the Bible tells us we don't need more rocks. The Bible tells us that we need to heal. That's what the Bible says. That we need to forgive and forgiveness brings about that healing it brings about that change. And unfortunately, church, I wish it was not this way, but forgiveness doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't change overnight. But when we forgive, healing comes and bitterness can't set in. God's love and God's forgiveness towards each one of us are powerful enough to quench any fiery flame of a hot temper of wrath. To quench it. God's, God's love and his forgiveness towards us are more powerful than any heart of ice that's been frozen over by bitterness. And so church, you have to just experience God's forgiveness and walk in that. Allow it to transform your life and to let that cause you to extend that same grace and forgiveness to the people around you. And when you do that, when you forgive, you will become free from sinful anger. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the challenge, God, to, to, to be free from unforgiveness in this life and resentment and bitterness. And God, if there is someone in here today that is walking through dealing with anger or unforgiveness, Lord, I pray, I pray, Holy Spirit, that they would meditate upon these words, that they would seek you for help, for wisdom. Lord, that they would begin to navigate to forgiving the people that have hurt them. And Lord, I ask of you now to give us your strength as we depart from here. Give us divine encounters and interactions with the lost and the hurting. Help us to be an example of, of light in a very dark place. God, we love you and we thank you for your love and your mercy and your forgiveness towards us. God, we thank you that you are a long-suffering God. And we thank you, Lord, that your kindness is what leads us to repentance. And so, Lord, help us to have a mind that is set on you and your truth 
Help us to be undivided in the way that we walk, Lord. Let us not look to the left, to the right, Lord, but let us look to you. Guide our steps with your truth. And ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.